If you have a Bible, please turn uh, to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, and look at verse 22. First Peter chapter 1, only verse 22 this morning. This is God's word for us this day. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Will you pray with me? Father, Lord, you know this is not often how we do these but there's so much glory here and there's so much weight and there's so much need for us to really hear and obey your word. Help us to be a body that fulfills the great commission this day by obeying everything you've taught us. Help us to hear from you this day, to be encouraged this day, to be surrendering more and more to you this day, as you shape what you want from us in your holy word. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. I want you guys to imagine something. Um, This works best if you imagine it from a male point of view. I'm not trying to leave anybody out, but it helps if you imagine this from a male point of view. I want you to imagine... You're a guy sitting across the table from another guy. And the guy you're sitting across the table from is a good husband. Uh, he's a good Christian, godly man. And you and this guy are friends. And so you decide to share with your friend a thought, because friends share their thoughts with friends, right? That's something friends do. So you look at this man across the table, this good and godly husband to a lady you know. And you say to this man that you know, you know, I really think of you as a really good friend. But man, I can't stand your wife. How well do you think that would go? Scale of 1 to 10, how positive is this going to be? I'm not hearing a lot of 9s. Remember, dear friends, the Bible speaks of the universal church as the bride of Christ. And while you and I individually are not spouses of Jesus, that would be weird, the totality of believers are united as the bride of the Savior. We together are God's gift to his son, his treasured possession. So imagine how Jesus must want to respond when people in the church are harsh or cruel or gossipy or unloving toward one another. I wonder if Jesus hears us in those moments doing things to speak against and do harm to his bride. Now, we as Christians have to be willing to correct and challenge each other. We've got to hold each other accountable. We've got to protect true biblical doctrine. But we're not supposed to be nasty and cruel and mean-spirited people. You understand, don't you, that we can love and rebuke. 
Right? But we cannot be unloving and still honor Christ. So this morning we're going to look at a passage here. Peter is going to challenge the church of the Lord Jesus Christ with a very familiar, very simple command. And the command has only three words. And the command is something you and I all already understand. And the command is something you and I struggle to do. What's the command? Love one another. So let's get ready. We're going to see two points in this single verse. Uh, The first one really sets the stage for the call to love one another. So if you're ready, first point. You ready? You all good? Point number one, believe for a pure soul. Believe for a pure soul. Look at the beginning of verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Last week we saw a couple phrases like this one that modified sort of the main point of what Peter was saying. And here it is, right? A main point, what's coming next in the verse, is being modified by a participle. That's the phrase with an I-N-G word at the beginning, having purified, right? And that phrase assumes something to be true of the Christians that Peter's writing to, something that happened in the past, but which in this case has tremendous ramifications for what is coming in the future. And because this thing is true, it is supposed to impact the Christian's obedience to the command that comes at the end of the verse. And Peter's here talking about the salvation of the Christians, and he uses a phrase that I think is really, really important Because how many of you naturally would describe your salvation as having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth? Is that the first thing you say? Not often, right? So that gives us something we need to think about. Let's think about salvation. In order for anybody to go to heaven, two important things must be true of us. One is, and this is the easy one, this is the one you know immediately. One is, because we've all sinned against God, a price has to be paid for the sins that we've committed. You all know that one really well, don't you? We could call this, though, the negative side of the balance sheet. We've gone against God. We've offended God. We've rebelled against His holiness. God, as a just God, must properly punish sin. God must carry out judgment against all that offends his perfection. That's part of his character. And we saw something about this side of salvation last week in the message. Because if you look up at verse 18, it talks about our having been ransomed by God, ransomed for God, Because Jesus Christ came and he shed his blood and he died to purchase us for God. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin against God so that the Lord would not look at you and me and see a record of wrongs that are uncovered, unpaid for. The price, the price of our sin, the payment due for our sin is an infinite payment. And only the infinitely perfect Son of God could ever have paid that payment on our behalf. 
And everyone who's ever come to Jesus has found that Jesus died to pay the price for their sins. That's one side. But having your sins paid for is only part of the issue. That's half of the equation. It's the negative side. But the other side of this that is vital is that all who would enter the presence of God, if you want to enter the presence of God, would you like to be in the presence of God, by the way? Does this sound good to you? All who would enter the presence of God must be made perfect. God is too holy to allow sinful, tainted, dirty things into his presence. If you want to glance there, if you're fast, go to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. If you're slow, just listen. But if you're fast, you can flip there. Verses 3 through 6. Listen to these words because we get a question and answer that's very significant to what we're talking about here. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? That's the psalmist saying, who gets to be in the presence of God? Here comes the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation and the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Who gets to be in the presence of God? Only the one who has clean hands and a pure heart can approach the Lord and his dwelling place. Now let me ask you, don't be theological on me, just be realistic with me. How many of you feel like, man, I have got me some clean hands and some pure heart. I can just hike up that mountain right now. Again, I'm hearing about as many takers for that as I'm hearing people thought the husband thing was a good idea. Friends, even if our past wrongs are covered, not one of us is so good as to be seen as pure enough, perfect enough, righteous enough to approach the Lord in our own goodness and strength and purity. But you know what Psalm 24 says in verse 5, if you're looking? Of the one who can approach the Lord, the one who gets to approach God, listen to this. He says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and... What else will he receive? Righteousness from the God of his salvation. That verse shows us that the pure one, the one who can approach God, can do so because he receives, she receives as a gift from God a purity that is not naturally his on his own. The one who approaches God has granted to her by God an alien righteousness. Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians 5.21. If this isn't my favorite Bible verse, it's awful close. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Now that has both sides of the equation in that verse, doesn't it? Jesus takes upon himself the punishment for our sin. That's the negative side, right? And Jesus grants to those whose sins he forgives his, Jesus' very own righteousness. Do you hear that as a gift to you, friends? Do you hear that? God says, I don't just pay for your sins. I give you the gift of my perfection so you can walk into my presence. Jesus changes our accounting so that our negatives are charged to his balance sheet and he pays for those with his death. And Jesus transfers to our side of the balance sheet the perfect record of righteousness that only he ever lived. And Jesus says, according to his accounting, we are now counted as pure. And then when he returns, he will perfectly, really, finally make us perfect and pure so we can live in the presence of the Lord God forever. And that's how Peter could say of the people who he's writing to that you are people who have had your souls purified. We're not naturally pure. Our sin keeps us from natural purity. Our fleshly desires battle against us. But Jesus covers us on both sides of the balance sheet. He died to pay our penalty and he gives us a righteousness of his own that purifies our souls. Now, this is a, a, a moment where you've got to say, if you're not sure, how in the world do we get that? You want to know, right? Peter says this occurs, and this is not the answer you would have given, most likely, not his words. Through, look at verse 22 and tell me, what is it through that God purified our souls? Through our obedience to the truth. Is that the natural answer you would have given? <laughs> Wait a minute. It feels squidgy to me. But that echoes what Peter said in verse 2. If you look up in verse 2, it says we were elect for, and then you go through like we have something from the Father, something from the Spirit, but then it says we are elect for obedience to the Son, and for sprinkling with His blood. And I said to you, because I'm sure you vividly remember that sermon from a month and a half ago. Vividly. Every word. I said to you in preaching that passage, and Kelly vividly remembers, that this is not a salvation caused by our obedience to a law or rule or command for action. Peter says it's an obedience to what? To the truth. So what is it to obey the truth? You've got to know that. And that is to believe the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. Genuine salvation always, 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 always leads to an obedience to the commands of God. If you had come to Sunday school this morning... You would have heard a lot about that, right? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Salvation always leads to obedience. 
But right here in this passage, we learn that our souls are purified when we, by the grace of God, empowered by God, entrust our eternal souls to the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. So if you're here or you're hearing this and you're not yet a believer, understand this is the good news. You and I are not pure enough to please God. We're not pure enough to go to heaven. You and I have done wrong things that should cost us an eternity in hell. But God has chosen to rescue a people for himself and for his son. And he chose to do this how? Jesus, God the Son, came to earth. He lived the only perfect human life ever lived. Then Jesus died on a cross as a sacrifice. And as Jesus is dying on the cross, God the Father is punishing God the Son for every single sin that God would ever forgive so that God can be perfectly just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, Jesus came back to life, and he proved that his work is complete and that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. It, was, it did its job. And now the word of God says to us that everyone is willing to let go of their life. If you're willing to say, I'm not the boss of my life anymore, I'll turn from my sin, I'll stop fighting against God, and everyone who will fully entrust themselves to Jesus for mercy will be saved. Jesus will forgive us our sins, and Jesus will give us his record of perfection so that we don't have to face the punishment that we actually deserve, and so we can be ready to spend eternity forever together with God. God in perfect joy. So if you've never come to Jesus, let me tell you, there's no other way for you to be right with God. You cannot make up for your wrongs. You cannot become clean enough on your own. All you can do is come through Jesus. So believe for a pure soul. And if you're a believer, which, I mean, for heaven's sake, we're were people meeting at 10.30 in the morning, 10.45 in the morning on a Sunday morning in a school. Most of you are believers. <laughs> this is not the place folks are naturally drawn to be right now in Las Vegas. Did you know that? But you've got to let this truth, that old familiar truth, let it give you joy. Jesus suffered the wrath of God that you and I deserve, but we could have never survived. Jesus cleanses us and he makes our souls pure so we can actually be the children of God. And that's got to lead us to worship. And it's got to lead us to changed lives. And it's got to lead us to obedience. And Peter tells us it's going to lead us to one kind of life together as the people of God. And that's what we'll find in point number two. Love one another genuinely. Love one another genuinely. Verse 22 says altogether, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, whenever you see a four in the text after it describes something that happened to you, we need to take note. Four is a purpose word. 
There is an outcome God is shooting for in our salvation. There's a reason that he's done what he's done. Now, of course, there are many reasons why God saves people, right? We know that. And all of the reasons God saves people point to the glory of God. But right here in the word of God, Peter, speaking to a struggling group of believers, reveals a purpose for their salvation central to their survival. Peter says that a purpose for our salvation is God saved us because he wants it to result in a sincere Brotherly love. Something about God saving you and God saving me is God desiring to develop in you and me a true, honest, genuine love for one another. It's interesting, the Greek word there for sincere, actually, you could almost say it's non-hypocritical. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. He saved us so that we would develop a non-hypocritical love. And if that's missing, something's wrong, deeply wrong with what we call our salvation. Now, what's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a person who pretends to be one thing while really being something else. Okay? So, a hypocrite is that person who pretends they're organized but squeezes the toothpaste from the middle. (laughs) That might be personal opinion on my part. But it's correct. A, A hypocrite in the context of love in the church, that's when somebody puts on that falsely sweet demeanor toward you but they really don't like you at all? You you all know when people do that to you? By the way, I know know who does it to me. (laughs) Don't think I don't. I don't have to see your face to know. When people act like you're important to them, but you're not, that's hypocrisy. And the kind of love that God saved us for is the opposite of that non-hypocritical. I'm not going to try to say the Greek word. God wants you and me to have a love for each other that is real, not fake. Now, what does it mean to love one another? We need to know that, right? First, love needs to mean that we're living in commitment to one another. Love is bigger than an emotion. Love is something you do whether it feels good or not, whether it's easy or not. A parent loves his or her child whether the child is behaving well or making life miserable. A wife loves her husband whether or not he's able to make her smile today. Can you imagine if you stopped loving just because somebody couldn't make you smile today? You wouldn't love anybody, would you? Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Jesus showed us God's love by dying to rescue us. He was so committed to our good, to doing us good, to bringing us good, that he kept going even when it hurt. You see why I call this commitment, by the way? Jesus had to be committed to doing us this good because it cost us, it cost him having to suffer the wrath of Almighty God on our behalf. And I promise you this, Jesus did not enjoy that suffering. In his suffering, Jesus was not feeling, I would assume, all the highs that we associate with love as we just think about love as a sappy, sweet thing. But you know what Jesus did? He kept on because he was committed to our good and he was committed to God's glory. But along with that commitment to the good of another person in love, added to that must also be a genuine affection. While love is not always riding the emotional wave, while it's not always easy, love does include a genuine affection for, a genuine heart for someone else. We would be fools to say love is only emotion. You guys would agree with that, right? But we would be fools to say that genuine love lacks emotion altogether. We'd be fools to say that. So what's the command of God for us? He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So Christians, stop and think about this. Because you know this command. You know it's right. I mean, is there anything about God tells us to love one another that you came in and said, what? I had no idea. But how seldom is it our focus? God says this is a clear purpose for why he saved you. For a sincere brotherly love. This is God's desire. You and I are radically saved by God so we can love one another earnestly with pure hearts. Is this something we haven't seen? What did Jesus say? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's John 13, 34 and 35. In 1 John 3, 23, we get both the gospel and the love together because it says this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. No, the call to unity, the call to fellowship, the call to love each other, that's not new. But dear me, can it be hard we are naturally selfish. We are naturally self-focused. We naturally try to protect ourselves and guard our feelings. We try to hide our weaknesses from each other. We live to satisfy our basic wants and we naturally think that our opinions, our desires, our strategies are superior to those of others. Isn't that true? But inside the church, friends, this must not be. God has shown us his love. 
Jesus has shown us that this model of self-sacrifice. And you and I, because we're saved, are supposed to look for ways to enliven a genuine, sincere, heartfelt love for one another. And Peter says, do it, love one another earnestly. If you've got a different translation, you might see it translated fervently. It's a word that indicates being stretched to the extreme. Our love for each other is not supposed to be little. This is not a secondary part of your life. This is not something that, well, take it or leave it. If you can do it, great, but don't worry about it. No, 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 no. This is to be a part of your life that stretches you and strains you to the glory of God. And our love for one another is supposed to come out of pure hearts because you can't love if your heart is set on evil, if your heart wants to use others or abuse others or gain from others without giving to others, then your heart can't love. But if, and if you look at people around you as tools for you, tools to satisfy you, you know nothing of love. Now, what we've seen is because of salvation... We've been made pure, legally pure, in the presence of God. And the purity which is ours already in heaven, Jesus has already written it down in our accounting book, that purity is supposed to be seeping into our lives right now. Again, before God, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. It's accounted as yours, even while you're still a sinner here on earth. But as a saved sinner here on earth, you and I are daily supposed to fight and battle for that purity. And that daily striving, that step-by-step growing more like God, that's what we call sanctification. And genuine believers strive to have pure hearts so we can truly, earnestly love one another. Okay. Now, at this point, I want to stop. And I want us to get practical. Some of y'all need some practical here if you're going to get this. I mean, here in 1 Peter, he's going to go on Uh, He's going to give us reasons to love like this. He's going to tell us in chapter 2 some things to take out of our lives so that we can love like this. Really, a lot of the rest of of this book is going to tell us how to live in a dark, hard world, and it's going to include how we love each other. But for this week, I want to take us to one other passage because this passage gives us a clear example of self-sacrificial love and what it looks like and how we put it on. And then we can use that to test our lives to see how we're doing loving one another earnestly from pure hearts. So if you have a moment, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This is a great passage from the pen of the Apostle Paul that shows us self-sacrificial love at work. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, says, and by the way, we we start with an if. This is a test condition. If this is true, then we're going to have you called to do something. So you can help me with this, okay? If this is true. If there is any encouragement in Christ. Is that true? Is there encouragement in Christ? Okay, you're sure? Okay, you know, you all realize you're signing up for something if this is true. If there's any comfort from love, is there comfort from the love of God? You're sure? You guys are quieter than last time when I said you were signing up for something. (laughs) 
If there's any participation with or fellowship with the Holy Spirit, is there the Holy Spirit in your life because of Jesus? Okay. If there's any affection and sympathy, any affection, any sympathy, any lovey feelings with you and God because of the salvation you have in Christ? Yes. Okay. Then Paul says, complete my joy, here they come, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, look at verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, please see this, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The affection and sympathy that is to mark our love leads to the things that we see demonstrated in verses 3 and 4. When you love other Christians, you consider them to be more valuable than you are yourself. Be honest. How easy is that? Are you really ready to look around this room and say, those people around me are more valuable than me? When you love other Christians, you consider their desires more important than your desires. When you love other Christians, you don't press your agenda forward for the way you think it ought to go. You work to see that the needs of others are met first. I wish I didn't need to say this, and it's not in my notes, but that is not saying you ever submit to abuse. Don't ever let somebody make the self-sacrificial view of love mean that you love by submitting to allowing someone to harm you in sinful ways. Never, never, never. But do we have any example, do we have any example to follow from Scripture of somebody who loved like we see in verses 3 and 4? Why, yes, in fact, Paul thought of that question and gave it to us in the next verses. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, do you guys see that gorgeous picture of Jesus right there? Jesus is God. You guys know that's true, right? If that surprises you, we need another conversation at another time. Jesus is eternally God. There's never a time when Jesus wasn't God. Jesus outranks you and me forever, but Jesus let go of at least we could say the honor of his deity. And he humbled himself. How much did he humble himself, you ask? Jesus humbled himself to the point of stepping out of heaven and taking upon himself human flesh. He truly became a man. But he humbled himself even further. How? 
he submitted himself to the torture and the death of the cross so that he could rescue for God his people. And the Bible says that's how God demonstrated his love. Now, when we get in there and we start thinking about Philippians 2, 5 through 8, man, we see some doctrine, don't we? Isn't that just a gorgeous doctrinal passage? I mean, we see Christology at work. It shows us Jesus is deity who chose to take on humanity willingly and he gave himself as a sacrifice and this is awesome. That is doctrine. But, the context of the passage is Paul, by God through Paul, telling you and me to have the same mindset as Jesus had when he did this as you and I relate to other people in the church. We're supposed to look like Jesus. How? We're supposed to look like Jesus by in love like Jesus laying down the rights and honors that are due us as we care more for the good of others than we care for our own comforts. That is what Christ-like love looks like. And recognize that Christ's love for us, his sacrifice for us, it wasn't a begrudging commitment. Jesus has genuine affection, genuine heartfelt love, genuine emotion toward those he saves, for those he saves. Jesus doesn't just rescue you as a responsibility. Jesus cares for you. Think about when Jesus' friend Lazarus died. Jesus went to the tomb. Why did Jesus go to the tomb? What was he going to do? He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, wasn't he? And even as Jesus walked to the tomb, even as Jesus knew that he was about to do something glorious, even as Jesus knew that in five minutes Lazarus was going to be right here with him, Jesus wept. Now, Jesus most certainly wept over the ugliness of sin and the evil of death in this world and the tragedy of being surrounded by these unbelieving people. He wept over that, there's no doubt. But Jesus also wept, it seems, because he loved Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And Jesus knew this family was hurting. And Jesus cared enough about these people to weep with them in a time of sorrow. So let's try to draw some personal application here. We can see the principle very easily. The Bible tells us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Good. And if you hear that and you know it's true and you don't do anything about it to try to make that happen in your life, you are missing the weight of the scripture here. So first, examine yourself. I gave you two sides of love. Examine yourself first from the commitment side of love. You know who your church family is, right? If you can't figure it out, I would suggest look around. They're sitting by you. 
The church family are the people of God who have gathered together, who have covenanted together to be the body of Christ in this particular setting. And so I ask you, are you, before your own good, ready to be committed to the good of other people here in the body? Are you ready to give of yourself, of your time, of your energy, of your resources to see to it that others here in the body have the good God wants for them? And this might mean when a fellow Christian is in need, you go help out. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's helping somebody move. I wish it wasn't, but maybe it is. Maybe it's helping provide food for somebody when they're sick or had surgery or have a sick family member. Let me ask you, how many of y'all have at one point in your life here in the church received food from somebody else who was just taking care of you? Amen. Did it help? Oh, baby, yes. (laughs) Maybe it's babysitting a couple's kids so they can have a date night. Maybe... Maybe it is just you being available to let somebody weep as they express their hurts and their sorrows. And by the way, maybe it's letting them weep and express their sorrows without you thinking that you get to fix it. Because you know what? Not every time we need that. Loving one another requires things like that. But also, in the commitment side is the boldness and honesty to speak hard truths to them. That's, that's committed love. If you see me in sin, you don't love me and let me continue. You talk to me. Now, you, you do so kindly. You don't do it meanly. You do so mercifully. You don't try to do it extra harshly. You do so carefully, not carelessly. If it's me, again, doing it over food always helps. (laughs) But if you love me, you help me see my sin and forsake my sin and live in righteousness in place of my sin. That is what loving Christians do. We are honest enough with each other to help each other find the glory of Christ together. We don't let each other walk away from the Lord without a struggle. And by the way, that's why church membership is so important because you've got to know who are you supposed to be together with and going after. Last point on the commitment side of love. We're still on commitment side right now. If you're going to do this, listen to me. Wake up. Do not wait to do this. You do not say, I will love if some others first come and love me. You don't say, well, I would love other people, but nobody loves me the way I want to be loved, so I'm not loving anybody back. Friends, that's not love. Biblical love means that you are willing to take the initiative. Biblical love means you're willing to take the risk. Biblical love means you do what it takes for you to get to know others and to be kind to others and to care for others and to correct others in need. You open your own life for correction. And friends, this is hard. It's a stretch, but it's exactly the kind of thing God wants of his people. 
Okay, that's the commitment side. What about the affection side? Because I said there's an affection side of love. We love to say love is bigger than emotion. And it is. But love contains emotion. And that means, dear friends, that it is your responsibility as a Christian to do what you must do in order to develop in your life affection for other believers. You say to me, but you can't command people's emotions. Why can't we? Does God ever command your emotions? What does Philippians always tell us to do? In the Lord always, again I say. God commanded joy. Isn't that an emotion? Oh, crud. What's the the first and greatest commandment? Blank the Lord your God. There's emotion. And blank your neighbor as yourself. There's emotion. All right. You are supposed to build in your life Develop in your life affection for other believers. Now you might say, well, I'm not a naturally affectionate person. I'm not emotional. I'm a logical person. I'm not emotional, so I don't have these affections you're talking about. Very good. Do it anyway. Seriously. God did not give you a free pass just because emotion ain't easy for you. And by the way, there's some of y'all that have more than enough emotion to spare. Share that with them. Help them figure it out. You have to find a way to stir up in your own Christian heart what is needed to have kind affection, good feelings, loving emotion for other people in the church. And now I'm not saying be sappy. But you've got to genuinely learn to care for others. You need to learn to love earnestly from your heart. And that requires some of us to really, really work. That might require in your life disciplined, spiritually disciplined actions so you can do the thing that the Lord commands you to do. You will not, though, think about this, you will not love others if you don't know them, will you? So part of the issue here maybe is that you have to work to genuinely get to know other people in the body. Invite somebody else over to your house for dinner and listen to their story. Make a phone call to somebody just to find out how they're doing. Maybe as you think about how do I love somebody, well, I I, I need to help these people. So-and-so needs a meal cooked. I can help with that. Great. Get another church member to come with you and join you as you work together to make that meal and then you can help those other people as you get to know somebody else and you can learn better how to love others in the body. Loving others in the body is part of, is is being together. By the way, that means, Christians, hear this, I'm speaking as the pastor, you're supposed to be here on a Sunday morning. Gathering together as the people of God is necessary for the family of God to love one another. One another. If you decide, I'm not going to church, I don't want to be in church, then what you're doing, one thing for sure, is not loving the body the way you should. Worship together is part of how we love each other. Now, you might say this to me, man, some of these people drive me nuts. True? Now, Hopefully not a lot of them, but you cannot tell me that everybody in this room stirs your affections in the same way. 
And if they do, you're better than me, faux show. Sure. <laughs> Man, all these people are so different from me. <laughs> of course they are. That's what it means to be a diverse body. But don't you see, when you open your lives to each other, you can always look to find something that makes you value somebody who's very, very different from you. You can grow affection for people who would never be your first choice of friends. Now that requires mental effort. That requires praying for others. Because man, you're going to be a better friend to somebody you're praying for than somebody you're not. That requires caring enough to see that other people have good done for them. But it is something you as a Christian can do. Now let me remind us again of the words of Jesus as I close. In John 13, 34, and 35, you know these verses. You probably haven't memorized. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus called us, friends, to love. He called us to love like he loves. And I believe that means you love out of commitment for others' good and out of affection that you develop for them. And Jesus said that that kind of love is going to shock the world. Why does it get the world's attention? It blows the world away when people who are different, like we're different, people who shouldn't even like each other at all, People who come from different backgrounds, who enjoy different things, when those people love each other, the world sees and the world knows that something really different is happening in our midst. So Christians, here's my challenge. Pray hard this week about what you can do to love one another earnestly. Pray and ask God to give you guidance here. Pray that you would be committed to one another. Pray that God give you affection for one another. Pray that God give you affection for people who would normally drive you up a wall. Pray, love, and show the world that our God is life-changing. And remember that this kind of love, it is both a purpose of and a result of salvation. Peter said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So if you're saved, sincere brotherly love in the church is your goal. If you're not yet saved, please come to Jesus and receive from him the grace that you need for eternal life. Let's pray together.